Okay. Good morning to all of you who are joining in for uh, the Rock Church's live uh, streaming of our Sunday morning worship service. Uh, coming to you here from the ledge in Squamish. And uh, we just want to welcome you, uh, whether it is that you are here in Squamish or in the uh, Cedar Sky Corridor, uh, maybe from Whistler or Pemberton, could be even the rest of the country and even other parts of the world, such as South Africa. I know I have family and friends that are tuning in from South Africa perhaps this morning. We want to welcome you and just say uh, we are glad that you're able to join us for this morning's uh, live streaming. And uh, it would be really fantastic if you made yourself known uh, through the online chat platform there. Maybe just uh, give a wave there to someone who's uh, participating there and someone from the Rock Church would love to just uh, be in contact with you, find out who you are and find out how we can bless you, how we can serve you in this current time. So listen up. Um, as the majority of us who are part of the Rock Church would know, we are currently in the book of Micah, preaching through this Old Testament prophet, uh, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And uh, we have done the first three chapters of Micah and the last three Sundays. And at this stage, I want to say, Rock Church, I really want to encourage you not to be discouraged because I have had, you know, one or two people just ask me, hey, so, you know, why are we in the book of Micah? Like, so far, it's, it's pretty heavy, man. Like, this is, this is really not a kind word that God is speaking to His people. But I want to just emphasize this again, what uh, Paul Seaman said last week, you know, it is, it's the hard words that create soft hearts, and it's the soft words many times from uh, preachers who only want to preach to what people want to hear. It's those soft words that create hard hearts towards God. And, and so we are really trusting that through this uh, prophetic literature, through God's inspired word, as, is, as it was uttered by Micah, that he has got hard words for his people, but in the end, uh, it will lead to soft hearts towards God. And so I want to encourage you today, uh, Rock Church, be encouraged because we are in chapter 4, and there is a turning point here in chapter 4. Because for the first three chapters, as I'd said, it was some pretty hard teachings. You know, in chapter 1, we heard of how God was calling out His people for their sin. They were going to all the other high places of the culture. They were going to all the other high places of the nations around them, and they were offering sacrifices to those idols and gods. To the extent that they were actually, at one stage, they were sacrificing children. But God called them out on those sins and said that those sins were not unseen. In chapter 2, He called out their hypocrisy and their leadership by not taking care of the oppressed. They were not taking care of the widows and the orphans. There was injustice. And he said that there was a judgment coming. There was justice on the way. And so we heard that in, in chapter 3 as well, that justice was on its way, and there was going to be a consequence for the people of God's sin. But at the end of chapter 2, you will remember that Micah gave the people of God a glimmer of hope in the fact that there was going to be restoration on its way sometime in the future when a shepherd-like king would come. A shepherd-like king that would come and shepherd his people. And, and so we are back in that theme again of that hope. And I want to say to you this morning that that is what our hope is going to, to be. That's going to be the sermon title this morning, The Hope of God's Presence. And guess what? That's my only point for this sermon. You know, we're so used to our three-point sermons here every Sunday, so this will surprise a couple of you. Only one point. And that is it, that there is hope in God's promise, uh, in His presence. That's our only hope. Now, 2020 so far... You know, we can ask the question, what has happened in 2020 with our hopes? You might have had many goals and hopes for this year, and they've maybe been dashed, put on hold. Maybe you had hopes to go on a cruise ship, 
up to Alaska. And that all came to nothing. Many other various hopes of holidays and, and a year filled with much promise. But we have seen that circumstances can change. And in the end, we are left with this question, I believe, we need to ask ourselves. And that is, what is our hope based on? And is it real hope? Is it real hope? So let's have a look at, at chapter 4 and see what Micah says to us about what real hope is and where we will find it. But before we read there, let's just uh, bow our heads in prayer. Uh, Father God, we thank you for this new day that we can turn to you, that we can fix our eyes upon you, and uh, Lord, that we can come and ask for you to help us, for you to lead us. Lord, come and speak through your word. Come and illuminate to us, Lord, your truth. And I ask, Holy Spirit, come and empower me to speak your words. And come and examine our hearts this morning. And uh, we thank you for that. We thank you for your presence here with us, wherever we are. We are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So if you can turn to Micah chapter 4. And I want to encourage you to make use of a Bible. No, uh, I found it very interesting and just challenging if I'm making use of technology or a Bible app. Just, you know, there's notifications that pop up. There are text messages that come through and they can easily just come and distract us from what God is saying and doing. So I really want to challenge us to be in the Bible literally with a Bible open. So, chapter 4 starts with this. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills. And peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Micah starts off after having really ripped into the people of God, into the nation of Israel, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, he starts chapter 4 with this hope. It is the hope of the mountain of the house of the Lord. Now, what is interesting is immediately when he had, would have said mountain, there would have been something that resonated within the people about what they heard. Because when he spoke about the mountain of the Lord and the house of the Lord, immediately they would have connected that with the presence of God. You see, in Israel's history, they had experienced God's presence firstly at Mount Sinai after the people of God were led by God out of Egypt, out of that place of slavery, out of sin. And so at Mount Sinai, they experienced God's presence. God revealed himself to Moses and to the people of God, and he, and he gave them the law. He gave them the Ten Commandments. But it was also at the temple of the Lord, the house of the Lord God, then during the reign of King Solomon, when, we, when he had built the first temple, that yes, the Ark of the Covenant was now in the house of the Lord, and again, God's presence was there. God was amongst his people. And so when Micah comes with this notion of the mountain of the house of the Lord, he is saying, listen, the presence of God is going to come back, Israel. It's going to be lifted up above all the other high places that you have put above God. Because he's contrasting this with verse 1, where he, he was talking about the sins of the people. They were going to other high places, other high hills. 
Now here at the Rock Church, we have many mountaineers. We have many people that on a daily basis, they go up and down the chief. Weekly, they're up on Sky Pilot. And I've heard some say this, that when they are up there, that is where they all of a sudden experience God's presence because they're in awe. They look over the valley. They can just look around and intuitively they know that this is not by chance, that everything is here what they see, that there is something instead of nothing. They, they know that it was not just spontaneous generation that put all of these mountains in place. And so we can associate with that. That is where the people of God experienced God for the first time. And so they are reminded of this. They are reminded of their history. They are reminded of the, the temple of the Lord that was the presence of God. And so that temple was, of course, that place where heaven met earth, where they could come and experience God's goodness. But it's interesting to read what Micah tells them. He says, yes, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established again as the highest places. But then he says something interesting, and it would have, it would have come across to them really interesting because he says this, many nations shall come to hear the law of the word, the law and the word of the Lord. Many nations, and they would have been like, yeah, the presence of God is coming back. And then Micah is, there, is saying, but many nations will experience God's presence. And they would have been like, sorry, many nations? Because Israel knew that Yahweh was their God. And that the presence of God was limited to those who were His holy people. And so many nations is directly referring to Gentiles to those who are regarded as outcasts, those who are unclean, those who are Israel's enemies. So it's a, an interesting promise that he starts off here in chapter 4. And he carries on in that same breath then to say in, in verses 3 and 4, and I've forgotten to click here, there we go. Verses 3 to 4, he says, He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against the nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken." The hope of God's prom, uh, presence returning again to the people was to all nations. And, and what is really interesting here in verse 3 is it specifically talks about he shall judge. And it refers to the fact that God himself was going to come and judge. Emmanuel, the Messiah. And the result of that in this promise is that these nations, these enemies of God, these Gentiles, were going to turn their swords and their spears, so symbolic of their power, they were going to surrender it to this messianic king and to his mission. It was going to turn into tools for agriculture, plowshares, pruning hooks, in which they will join in with a great task of cultivating the land for a harvest. Together with that was this promise and this hope that this messianic king, God himself with people, would come and bring peace, that there would be no war. So it's a beautiful promise, it's a beautiful hopeful promise. But then Micah throws in, for me, a bit of a curveball there in verse 5. He says, For all the peoples walk each, 
in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. So he's, he's making this promise that the, the presence of God is going to come back. Nations will flow to it. It's not just for you, Israel, but it's for the whole world. But then he still says this realistic fact that people will still choose to walk in the paths of their gods, the false idols, those things that their hope is based on. But as for us, we will walk in the name of our Lord forever and ever. And it reminds us a lot of what Joshua told the people of God before they had taken the promised land. He said, listen, choose now whom you will serve, whether you will serve false gods or whether you will serve Yahweh. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So it gives that ring to it again of where Micah is placing this choice before the people. And so I believe out of these first verses, we get this promise of hope in God's presence, in His presence to return back to His people, even though there will still be people who choose to reject, choose to reject Him. Now, that's all very well if we are able to interpret that. That is what it meant for the nation of Israel. The question is, what does it mean for us? I think it means that everyone worships. We have said this so many times here at the Rock Church. It's not a question of whether you worship or if you worship, but it is what and who you worship. And you might ask, but Rudy, how do I know what I'm worshiping? The answer to this question, who or what is your hope in? Who or what is it that if you could not have it, if it was taken away, if you fell from your rock climbing and you are paralyzed, that might perhaps test whether or not that is your God. If it is your health and your wellness, if that is taken away, maybe that could reveal to you what is ultimately your hope in. I think in our world today, we have many options of of putting our hopes in, in various things. And I believe that the majority of the time what the world tries and sell us is a hope of forming an identity, an identity that is then in the end what our hope is in. Many people form their identity around what they own, whether they have property or whether they have investments or stocks, and they watch the stock market, and, and that is what their hope is in, because if the stock market is up, man, you feel good. Because I'm a, my identity is I'm a shareholder, or investments are up, or property prices have gone up, and man, I'm a property owner. I, I have my hope in that. Like I said, many people find their identity in their wellness, their fitness, their activity, and then, you know, it's like here where we live, you can wake up early in the morning and you're out of Brome and you paddle around on your paddleboard. And after that, you come back to the ledge, you grab a morning bun with your latte and you sip it. And then after that, well, let's think, go for a ride. After my ride, I end at Locavore, meet up with a couple of other people there, have lunch, have another drink, and then, oh, what are you guys doing? We're going up and down the chief, go up and down the chief. And then when I'm down at the chief, man, there is a Christian climbers group. Yes, I'm going to climb there. All glory to God. But I have to ask myself in the end that question, if my identity around what I've done is now I'm Squamish, that's my identity, I'm Squamish. What if it were taken away? Other examples are social issues. The world tries to sell us a cause, and if you would just, if you would just do this, if you would just submit to this cause, you will be a protester, an activist. And then a very powerful tool, of course, is sex. And the world tries to sell us this identity of you forming an identity around a group 
that approves your sexual orientation to your liking and the proclivities of your heart when it comes to your gender. And you form an identity around a pronoun. Personally, for me, I was hit by this this week. Jean and I, my wife, were expecting our second child. And I got this fear coming over me all of a sudden with what's lying ahead, because I know there's labor ahead and there's going to be extreme pain for me, right? No, there's going to be some pain involved for my wife, but I'm kind of like anxious about that. And, and there's some, you know, it's, it's our second child. Our first child was a C-section. And so with a second one, natural birth, we're praying for it. And, and there are some risks involved, but the, this thought came to my mind, you know, what if, we, what if something were to happen? And immediately I was challenged with my identity because God reminded me, Rudy, your identity is not that you're a father and a husband. Yes, that's some of the roles that you fulfill, but your identity is you're a child of God. Your hope is in my presence. It doesn't matter what's going to happen. Trust me that I will be with you in that. But the hope was in God's presence. But I had to check my heart there and say, Lord, what would happen? But you see, the, the good news of this first hope of God's presence is that it was fulfilled 700 years after this prophecy, after Micah's ministry. It was fulfilled when Jesus Christ came and He lived amongst us, God incarnate. Yes, the temple was rebuilt after the Babylonian exile, but the fullness was not restored. That prophecy of the nation streaming and laying down their lives for the Messiah, and that was only fulfilled with Jesus' life. And Jesus came, and I was reminded about this, by the way, at the Christian Climbers on Monday when there was a word shared by Mark Goulet, and it was about this issue of true worship. Because Jesus had this conversation in John 4 with the Samaritan woman. And she is, of course, a descendant of the people of Israel that were in the northern kingdom. And, and she was talking about Jesus about, you know, is it this mountain or that mountain? So she was fixated on going to a certain place. But Jesus tells her this. He says, listen, the hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such pe people to worship Him. So God brought his promise through Jesus, and Jesus is saying, listen, true worship, the true hope is going to be in my presence. And the only way that you will be able to experience my presence is if it is in spirit and truth. In other words, if your spirit is made alive. In chapter 3, uh, Jesus talks to Nicodemus about this, and he says, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Your spirit needs to be born again, and then you worship by the power of the Spirit and in the truth of who God is and who He has revealed Himself to be through Jesus Christ. Is our hope in God's presence today? Because with God's presence then comes what Micah is talking about then in verses 6 to 8. Let's read there. He carries on with God's presence, but talks about how it will bring restoration. He says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, heel of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Micah gives his people the hope of future restoration, but the only way that it will come is through God's presence. And God's presence is what will rescue them from their oppressors. 
But what's interesting about what we read there is God says, the way that I'm going to do it is I'm not going to rescue those who think that they're strong, those who think they are mighty, but he uses this description. He's going to rescue those who are lame, and he's going to take those and make a remnant, like a small devoted group who's going to see God's presence with everything they have. When he uses the word lame, he is specifically talking about a specific person. Because the word lame in Hebrew means to limp. And when they would hear that, they, of course, would have remembered the story of the origins of Israel through the man Jacob. And we know Jacob's story out of the Old Testament as he was the son of Isaac, but there were two sons to Isaac. They were twins. It was Esau and Jacob. Esau was this red-haired ginger with a lot of hair on his arms and everywhere. He was like this manly guy with his monster truck, and he was just, you know, blasting it down the highway. His music loud, and, and during the fall, he would be hunting and, and getting his moose and getting his bear, and he would just you know, dress it and have it ready. And he's like, I'm this guy. I'm hanging out at, at backcountry every week. And, you know, and he was loved by Isaac. But it says Jacob was this other guy who was very fashionable, for example. He was hanging around his mother and he was learning recipes to cook great food. And, you know, and he was knitting jerseys perhaps for the winter that was lying around. And his mother loved him, but jo Isaac didn't love him. But Jacob's name means to be a trickster. It means to be a supplanter. And so he tricked Esau out of his firstborn right. And he had to flee from Esau because he, he basically stole it from him. But then Jacob's story is that he has this encounter with God. And he wrestles with God. And he holds on to God. He doesn't want to let God go. And he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And so God puts his hand on his hip and in his socket and after that, Jacob has a limp. But God gives him a new identity and says, from now on you will be Israel. And Israel means to wrestle with God. And so when Micah says, lame, that is what the people remember. They are the people who wrestle with God. But I believe it's an invitation God gives them and He says, your healing is going to come and the people that I'm going to raise up to be a remnant are those who wrestle with me. It's an invitation to say, do not let me go until I bless you. Don't let me go in this time of exile. Because God's promise is He wants to have a remnant, a strong nation be built up again by those who are longing for His presence. It's a restoration plan that I believe in our culture today is mimicked and it's copied by politicians everywhere. We see it in their slogans before their campaigns. Let's make our country great again. Reflecting and trying to towards the past of when we were great. And then other politicians try and do it by saying, no, let's not go back. Forward, we choose forward. But in the end, both of those visions that we see that is being given to us in our world today is actually the same vision. It's a vision of, listen, we want to restore justice, equality, equity. And ultimately, all of these things that are part of the kingdom, but ultimately, what's happening in our world is we want it without the king. We want the kingdom without the king. On an individual level, it plays out in this way, that us as individuals choose the way we want to live, the way we want to think, the way we want to talk. It's called subjective morality. I choose what is right and wrong until I'm wronged. Then I appeal to, oh, a higher morality. There's a higher justice. And so ultimately what it looks like on an individual level is I'm seeking for restoration, but I want it without the true restorer of it. And so ultimately the real transformation and restoration can only be accomplished, Micah says, for those who are lame, for those who are 
walking with a limp, for those who, yes, acknowledge their sin, acknowledge their shortcomings, acknowledge that they need God, and I need God, I'm going to hold on to you. Those are the ones that will restore us. Because listen, this is what the promise is, and the result is then if we do that and see that fulfillment in the restoration work of Jesus Christ, Jesus says then that who you now are is a new creation. The Bible says if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. It's a whole new identity. It is a, a calling of being a son and a daughter, a prince and a princess of the Most High God. And that's where the true restoration lies. It's not an identity that the world wants to give you, but it's firstly that my identity is I'm a child of God. So, Rock Church, this is what I'm saying. If you haven't heard me now already, the, the main point is it's the presence of God, the presence of God that, that Micah is encouraging us to hope in. And the presence of God that will bring the restoration. And then the last point that Micah makes here in verses 9 to 13 is that it's the presence of God that's going to sustain us through pain. He says there in verse 9 to 13, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. He's basically saying your kings are gone, your politicians, those who placed your hope in. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let her eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan, that He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many nations and shall devote their grain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Micah ends this chapter with the truth that Israel was going to be taken into exile and that was fulfilled a hundred years after his ministry. A hundred years after that, King Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed and this hope of the presence of God was demolished. But the promise is that God was going to rescue and restore them in exile. It's in their pain. And he uses this image of a baby that, that's going to be born and this labor process that before that blessing, the blessing of the baby can be held, there is pain that needs to happen. But not only that, he says, listen, there are many nations that are now gloating over you. They are standing around and they're like, Jerusalem has fallen, and they are rejoicing. But then he says, but this is God's plan. And he uses this image of a threshing floor, and what that is, is it's like a big area, normally could have been concrete type of area, hard area, but where sheaves, bundles of wheat and grain are then brought together so that an ox or an animal would be treading on, the, on these sheaves. Basically, when it's laid out, and then with the treading, after that, the reapers or the harvesters would come with winnowing forks, and they would then throw what had been trampled on into the air, and then the wind would blow the chaff away. So God is saying through Micah that, listen, this Babylonian exile is part of my plan. It's, it's you're going to be disciplined through this, but it is a plan for the nations, and it's in a little bit of contrast to what we read in verse 3. In verse 3, there is the promise that the, pr the presence of God was going to bring nations to God. But over here, this is a different promise. This is a threshing. This is ultimately what I believe Jesus talked about in Matthew 13, verse 30, where he used the parable of the weeds that grew in amongst the, the wheat and the grain. Jesus said, let both grow together until harvest, and the harvest at harvest time I will 
Tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This promise that Micah ends off here for Israel and for God's people is that, yes, there's hope in my presence, all nations will flow to it, but remember, many people will still reject me. Follow God. Yes, restoration is coming, but remember, there are nations that still oppose God. And what Micah is saying is, there is a final judgment, there is a final threshing floor and the threshing is going to come through the daughter of Jerusalem, through Zion. And that is once again, ultimately fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is, in the end, that threshing floor. Jesus Christ is ultimately the one who came and will then finally come again to thresh and separate the chaff from the wheat. My conclusion today is this. And I'm going to ask it in a form of a question. What if this period that we are currently going through and what we're experiencing is a kind of an exile where yes, we are not able to meet as we regularly met. The church is going through a time where many of us are longing for gathering together corporately. And we have seen the world shaken by our current situation. But what if this is part of God's plan to ultimately call out a remnant, those who are then the small portion, those those ones who are the lame, the weak, the ones that hold on to God, that say, I will not let you go until you bless me. Because ultimately we need to remember God's call on the church has always been that we are supposed to be separate. We are not supposed to love this world the way that the world loves itself. Jesus echoed this in John 15 when he said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And we know that the call of the Christian is to be separate from the world. We are living in this world, but we're not from the world. We are in exile, spiritual exile. We are not home yet. Even though God's presence is with us through His Spirit, we know ultimately everything will change when we are physically seeing Jesus' face in front of us at his second coming. And so my question and my conclusion is here today. Church and Rock Church, what if this time of Babylonian exile and a type of exile, let's call it a COVID exile, what if this is the time that God is calling us to reflect back on what the nation of Israel did? How did they live out that exile? And how did the, the church in the beginning of the birth of the church, how did they live out their calling in a time where they were scattered and persecuted? And what if we turn back to those ancient pathways? We see a glimpse of what it looked like in Babylon through the life of Daniel. Daniel was only a teenager when he was led from Jerusalem to Babylon, and in Babylon, they tried to brainwash him and his friends with the education of the Babylonian ways. They castrated Daniel. They wanted to tell him what his gender was, that he was a nothing. But you know what? If you look at the life of Daniel, he lived in exile, but he was faithful to God. And we get a glimpse of his rhythms in Daniel 6, because in Daniel 6, we have a situation where Daniel is serving the king of Babylon, and there are other administrators. They are jealous of Daniel because there's the favor of God on Daniel. And they put in a law that makes it illegal for people to pray to a God other than the king. And the king says, yeah, that's great because I can be God. But Daniel listens to this and he says, it says there, he knew that the document had been signed. So it's now the law. The law stated you're not allowed to pray. 
But he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem, facing the hope of Jerusalem, facing that promise of God's presence, facing the promise of the Messiah. He got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and he gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. You see, Daniel was living to the rhythm of Jerusalem. He was living to the rhythm of God's presence, even though he knew the temple is destroyed, even though he knew that the presence of God was not there. He was living according to the old glory, the old dominion, but he was living for the future glory, the future dominion that would come with the faith in the Messiah. He was living like a Christian. And we get a glimpse of the church doing the same thing in Acts 2. And their rhythms was similar to this. It says in Acts 2, verse 42 to 47, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, of, uh, fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And the prayers. Prayer was part of their rhythm they were devoted to tuning into Facebook Live Sunday mornings, and they were listening to the Word of God. They were devoted by sitting in their beds in the mornings. They were reading the Word of God. They were devoted to whether the fellowship was just coming together via Zoom or with a, a small group of people. They were devoted. And they would break bread, whether it meant that they met just at the ledge for a quick coffee with someone. They were devoted. And they prayed. My opening question was, you know, what is our hope ultimately in? And I believe we have to make a choice as, as the church and, and as Christians to say our only hope is in God's presence. That's our only hope to sustain us through the, the pain. It's our only hope to restore us. And perhaps today, is that day that if you're listening for the first time and you've never made that commitment, you, you have never experienced God's presence. Maybe it is that you've gone up on a mountain, you're like, you're in awe of this, but something comes to mind for you that you've heard that, well, this is just spontaneous, this just happened by chance, but you know there's more, and now you listen to this and you're like, it's God. And maybe today is that day that you experience God's presence through repenting of your sins. Basically saying to God, God, I'm sorry, I apologize. Forgive me for not wanting to be in your presence by living the way that I want to live. Forgive me for that. And the invitation is this, then to experience the Holy Spirit regenerating you, making you alive. And for us who already love and serve and follow Jesus, Maybe the call is here today to once again, once again to repent and go and have a look and say, these four rhythms of listening to the apostles' teaching, in other words, God's word, the fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers, those four rhythms, because I believe this is what's happened, those four rhythms have been disturbed during this time. But maybe God is calling us to say, head back there, get into my presence. And that could look like you joining in via Zoom. Get into an MCG. If you don't know what that means, there's a missional community group. But be devoted. And so that is our example that we see out of Israel and, and when they were led into exile. And, and I believe that is God's call on His church in this moment. And let's pray. And let's allow the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts this morning and listen to Him, what He is calling us to do. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank You for Your goodness and for Your faithfulness. We thank You for Your provision. We thank You for Your hope that You had given us through Jesus Christ through God incarnate. And Father, thank you 
that it's a hope that you had given your people from the beginning. And it's a hope that you will carry through till the end. And so, Lord, I just come and pray for you, your kingdom to come, for your will to be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Lord, come and revive us again. Come and restore your church. Come and build us up again. Come and redeem us. But Lord, lead us in those ways that you want us to wrestle with you and hold on to you and not to let you go. I pray for the church. Lord, come and strengthen us to hold on to you. And Father, come and raise up a remnant in this time. We thank you that we can ask that. We pray your blessing over the Rock Church. We pray your blessing over your church. We pray your blessing over our town. Lord, we bless this town. We love Squamish. God, I love Squamish. We love to see what you have done in this place. But God, come and do a mighty work in our town. We trust in you for that. We pray for the nations. We pray, Lord, in this time, come and give wisdom with all that's going on in the world. Come and bring your people in place to, to give the, the wisdom of God. And we pray, Lord, that you will do a mighty work in these days so that, Lord, the, the threshing that is going to happen, that, Lord, many would still turn to you, that many would still choose you, Jesus. And we thank you that we can ask that because of your grace and your love and your mercy. Because you are a loving God. And so we, we just praise your name for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Hosanna in the highest 
Have a great day. Have a wonderful week. God bless you.